Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Today we'll be reading just a bit of chapter 13, verse 4. And then we'll be reading verses 21 through 28 of chapter 14. Let me set that up really quick. You know that we've been studying the church in the first century of Antioch of Syria. A great move of God among the Gentiles took place in Antioch. The church was formed and Paul and Barnabas were instrumental in that teaching and what was happening there. And all of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul emerged out of the Antioch church. We're looking at this as an example of a transformational church where people were becoming more and more like Jesus and we see the church becoming more and more like the body of Christ and the communities around the church becoming more reflective of the kingdom of God. Today we're going to take a little closer look at that first missionary journey and we're going to see how Paul and Barnabas were sustained by God's Holy Spirit and power through much adversity. And we hope that you and I will be able to face the adverse situations and challenges and storms in our lives through having studied how they got through it. Let's read together verse 4, chapter 13. The two of them, Paul and Barnabas, his name was actually Saul at this time, Saul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. Cyprus is the island where Barnabas had grown up. And then toward the end of chapter 14, starting at verse 21, this is towards the end of the journey. And then they reported what they had experienced. They preached the gospel in that city, which was Derbe, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That would be Antioch of Pisidia. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them and each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. Attilia. From Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch of Syria where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time, probably a year, with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. I just finished reading a great book called Under the Unpredictable Plant by Eugene Peterson. Many of you will recognize Eugene Peterson as the author of the message paraphrase of the Bible. It's a version of the Bible in contemporary narrative language. Peterson, however, also served as a pastor. And in the 1960s, the early 60s, he was commissioned to start a, very, a, a brand new church in 
the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. The new work was exciting, it was invigorating, and the church grew and grew. Back then, you start a church in a school or in a warehouse or another public building or even a home, and people would flock to it. And back then, churches, well, they grew. They just did. It was what people did. And by all accounts, the church was excess, success. But over the years, there was something that gnawed at the spirit of Eugene Peterson. It had to do with his own ego because he kind of liked the success thing, the growth and all the accolades. It fed his ego, and he confesses that in his book. He also says that he struggled with the religious marketplace where there was a pressure to please people and give people what they wanted instead of what they really needed. And then he also struggled with the amount of focus that was placed on the institution of the church, the structure and all of the programming of the big, bigger church, and the lack of that which he says is spiritually, uh, biblically spiritual. Uh, the lack of that which is rooted and cultivated in creation and covenant, leisurely in Christ, soaked in spirit. Peterson writes, For years I have searched the Scriptures for help in pursuing my life as a pastor. Time after time I've come upon rich treasures, but somehow I missed Jonah. I missed the book of Jonah. And in his book, he writes how he rediscovered Jonah. He says, I missed, it turns out, three of the most provocative pages in the Scriptures for my purpose. He argues that the center of the book of Jonah is prayer. Jonah, a prophet of God who ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel between 800 and 750 BCE, received an assignment from God to go to a faraway place called Nineveh. But that was the last place Jonah wanted to go, so he went the opposite direction and boarded a ship to Tarshish and tried to avoid the assignment altogether. Some of you know what it's like when God calls you to do something and you do everything in your power to avoid it. That's what Jonah did. Well, he found himself soon overboard on the ship and he would have died had God not sent a great fish, some translate it whale, but a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And he was spared down there in the belly of the smelly great fish. At this point, he's probably thinking that Nineveh looked pretty good. But something happened in the belly of the great fish that changed everything. Jonah prayed. And it wasn't a battering prayer, says Peterson, or a regretful prayer. It wasn't a prayer like, Lord, I'll promise I'll go to Nineveh if you just get me out of here. Or I promise that I'll do whatever you say if you just deliver me from the smelly belly. Or, Lord, I I promise I'll never again touch a drink if, if you just. You know, we pray those kind of prayers. Lord, if you will, then I will stop whatever. Or I will start doing whatever. It wasn't that kind of a prayer. Peterson says it was a derivative prayer, meaning that Jonah had been to school to learn to pray, and he prayed there in the belly of the great fish as he was taught. His school was the Psalms. 
Line by line, Jonah's prayer came directly from the Psalms, which was Jonah's prayer book. It starts like this. Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. In my distress, I called on the Lord, and He answered me. This is a lament. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And at the end of his prayer in verse 9, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Excerpts in his prayer, the entire nine uh, verses 2 through 9 from Psalm 18, 120, 42, 139, 69, 30, 142, chapter 3, and so forth. Every single word of his prayer came from the book of Psalms. As we study through the book of Psalms, you see there are two major themes there of lament, expressing our sorrows, appealing, of sharing our cries with God, our hurts, our deepest longings, and our thanksgivings. They address the two main conditions of human beings, distress and well-being. And Peterson argues that when Jonah was pushed to the very limits with his life at risk and his faith tested, that he relied on that which he had learned in the school of prayer through the book of the Psalms. It is this training that Peterson calls ascesis. Hence the funny name to the sermon title today. Ascesis. A Greek word that has to do with the way an athlete trains for a race or for the games. Ascesis is to spirituality what a training regimen is to an athlete. It's not the thing itself, how you exercise, but it's a regimen toward that helps develop maturity and excellence. It's the process of something day in and day out, a habit. And here as Christians, we would understand this as spiritual disciplines. While there, uh, this is where we derive the word asceticism, Peterson does not imply uh, what we un- understand as asceticism in some cases where people would hurt themselves and deprive themselves thinking that it was spiritual. No self-flagellation, no self-deprecation that some of the ancient mystics practiced. Rather, Peterson is speaking of a life of fervent prayer that comes through the hardships that Jonah faced in the belly of the whale. Voluntary ascesis is when you and I intentionally take steps, deliberate steps, to rid ourselves of pride, of being a God. Peterson struggled with this in his church. We deal with our sins and distractions, and we acknowledge our own mortality. We guard against a consumer mindset or easy spirituality. Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace that can lead to making decisions based upon taste and appetite. In other words, ascesis is when we purposefully place ourselves at the mercy of God to shape God's will in us. So in this sermon, I'm going to look briefly at the way of life that Paul and Barnabas and others on this missionary journey model for us as they proclaimed the gospel and planted churches and equipped leaders. Theirs was an unrelenting pursuit of prayer and discipleship. They endured much for the cause of the gospel, much more than I have ever or probably ever will experience. By the grace of God, however, through fervent prayer, they endured 
when trouble came their way. And as you will see, it came early and it came often. Some of your Bibles have maps in the back, and I encourage you at some point to look at the missionary journeys of Paul. Today's the first one. I have a map on the screen for you. And just to say that the church of Antioch is up in the right-hand top of your screen, and you can see the arrows pointing westward that help us to see the way that Paul and Barnabas traveled And it was in Antioch of Syria that they were commissioned to go. The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Saul and Barnabas. And the the church did and laid hands on them and prayed for them, anointed them, and commissioned them on this missionary journey. And the first stop was on the island of Cyprus, a, a town called Salamis on the east. And Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. So they would have received some hospitality there, uh, a welcoming kindred spirit, much like our children extended to you earlier today. We don't know much about Salamis, but they went uh, west to Paphos, uh, toward the west of the island, and proclaimed the gospel there. And then they journeyed up to the north onto Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they landed in Perga. This was where the first problem happened. You know, they took John Mark with them when they left Antioch. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin, scholars believe. And John Mark, we, if you've done some study, also uh, is believed to be the one who authored the Gospel of Mark, which was dictated by Peter later in his life in Rome. And so jo- young John Mark probably carried Paul and Barnabas' bags and food supplies and all of those kinds of things. So they got to Perga, and John Mark got homesick. Or maybe he got sick, or maybe he saw all of the work that it was going to require of him, and he said, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. And so he went back home. He deserted the mission. And there was some division that came about from that, and later, thankfully, there was reconciliation, but that's what happened. There was internal dispute, a conflict that could have totally disrupted the mission. But thankfully, Barnabas and Saul continued. Then they go on up to Pisidian Antioch. Chapter 14, verse 16 and following shows Paul's first recorded sermon here. And the people were very eager to hear from him. And in his message, all the way up to verse 41 of chapter 14, shares the Old Testament story all the way through the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He told the story. He'd been saturated in the Word of God and was able to draw on his teachings to share the gospel with others. Paul and Barnabas would turn their focus onto the Gentiles at this point because they had faced rejection among the Jewish believers and the converts to Jewish Christianity there. They were expelled from the region and they shook the dust off their feet. So we're seeing conflict, we're seeing adversity obstacles that they faced, but somehow, by the grace of God, which was enough for them, they continued. Then you see on your map, they went to the city of Iconium. This is in Galatia. So when you read Galatians, you see Paul writing to the churches that had started in that particular region. Many Jews and Gentiles believed there. However, there were people who caused an uprising, and there was a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. They stayed anyway for a while, for a considerable time, and then ended up heading to a town called Lystra. 
And it's in Lystra that they, that they healed a man who had been crippled. And crowds overwhelmed them after they experienced this. And they wanted to know more and more. They started to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Can you imagine how that would have pumped up their egos if they'd have let it? Talking about Eugene Peterson struggling with his own ego when things were going really well. Because of this healing, people wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they, they put a stop to it immediately, again, relying on the Word of God, taking them back to the fact that God had created them in His image, and that Paul and Barnabas were human beings just like the rest of them. Well, a group came from Antioch and Iconium, and they ended up stoning Paul and leaving him for dead. The disciples gathered around him and prayed over him, and by the grace of God, he was able to get up and go right back into the city. I don't know about you, but if I am, if people hurl stones at me and leave me for dead, I'm running, I'm out of there. I'm, I'm not going back for more. That's just, that would be my tendency. Maybe you're different. But my tendency would be to get out of there. Paul went right back and continued his ministry by the grace of God. After they spent some time in Lystra, they went to Derbe where they continued to preach the good news and won a large number of people to the Lord. Adversity, conflict, persecution, abuse, insults. And they were so convicted of what they believed, so convicted of how Jesus had changed their lives that they were fervent in their mission and continued on as the Holy Spirit had directed them. Now, Again, if it were me, and I'm in Derby, and I'm about finished with what I sense is the mission at that point, if you see on the map, Derby is over to the top right, right below Cilicia. You see that? Right below Cilicia. Just to the southeast of Cilicia is Antioch. That's home base. And Paul's hometown of Tarsus is just down to the bottom of Derbe. So if it were me, I'm leaving Derbe and I'm either going to stop back by Tarsus and get some home cooking, right? Or I'm going to head on over to Antioch where we are loved and where we have people who are supportive and where I can experience some healing. But if you read the last part of chapter 14, that's quite the contrary. They didn't do as Bob would have done. They went back the way they came, knowing that they could get hurt, knowing that there, was, there were groups of people standing against them, knowing that they had stoned Paul in one of the cities, yet they still went back, retraced their steps, encouraging the churches, uh, developing leaders, appointing elders, bringing organization to the churches that they had, had founded, seeing how people were doing strengthening them, praying for them, and uh, followed their entire track back, except they did not go through Cyprus. They got on a ship and sailed back to the port to go back to Antioch. How? How? How did they keep the faith when trouble came? 
I think the first answer to that is that they were saturated with the Word of God. They'd spent time in the school of prayer. Spent time in the school of the Psalms. Praying. Being encouraged. Staying in the Word of God. Being in fellowship with other believers who are like-minded, who could support them when things got tough. That's what you and I can do to be saturated with the Word of God over and over and over again. I was talking with one of our church members just the other day, and she said that one of the things that has helped her the most is to read the Bible through. And I think she said that she has read it twice through, and as often as she is able, she reads the Bible. Some of you have read the Bible through multiple times. Others, that might be a goal for you to aspire. Be saturated. It's like standing under a shower of water, allowing the water just to run over you, allowing God's Word, the living and breathing power of God to come over you, to be saturated with it, to take it all in, to make it a habit. Ascesis, the athletic training regimen that an athlete uses to prepare for the games of the race. Perhaps no better basketball player than Steph Curry with the Golden State Warriors as an example of that in sports. He's a point guard for the Warriors. They won the national, their, the NBA title this past season. His lifetime field goal percentage is 47.7%. That's every shot. His lifetime three-point percentage is 43.6%. Regular two-point baskets, 51.3%. So over half of every shot he takes makes it in the basket. And his free throw percentage is 90.3% lifetime. Nine out of every ten free throws he makes. And that doesn't happen by accident. His routine is 2,000 shots a week in practice, a minimum of 250 per day, and he takes 100 shots before every game. One writer at Sports Illustrated says, the average American could devote 12 hours a day to shooting jumpers for 20 years and not come close to Steph's prowess. A habitual study and saturation in the Word of God. Paul, and I would add Barnabas, saturated their lives with God's Word Fifteen times in chapters 13 and 14, the phrases God's Word, Word of Truth, Teaching of the Lord, the Law and the Prophets, Good News are mentioned, all referring back to the Word of God. They had saturated themselves in the Word of God so much so that they could call it up whenever there was a need or whenever they faced adversity. And some of you know exactly what that is like. The second way we can keep the faith when trouble comes is pray even when we don't feel like it. Jonah's prayer starts out as a lament. In my distress, I called on the Lord and He answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. I imagine he didn't feel like it, but he prayed anyway. Perhaps you and I can... Figure out how to pray anyway, even when words don't come. 
that we would trust that the Holy Spirit would intercede on our behalf when our words come up so short. Some of you know what it's like to go in the hospital and somebody's got something significant going on in their life and you just don't know what to pray. Sometimes your presence and a simple statement of, Holy Spirit, please intercede on me because right now my words are falling so short. And I believe your friend would appreciate that kind of raw and real prayer. Develop a personal ascesis, this regimen that enables you to face troubles faithfully. It's corporate worship, praying the Psalms as our book of, in the school of prayer, and praying the hours. As we worship together, we are encouraged, we are energized, we are brought together to a, a place where we hear God. So corporate worship is so very important. Make it a habit, part of your ascesis, to fight the fight of the faith, to stand firm when you face spiritual warfare in your life. And then to pray the Psalms, looking at the 150 Psalms in the middle of the Bible as your prayer book, and just allow those words to be your own. And then praying the hours when you wake up, the, the monks Pray on the hours when you wake up. Praying at nine in the morning at your office or in the school. Or at noon when you have lunch. Or three in the afternoon. Or at supper time. Or at 9 p.m. as you get ready to go to bed. Praying the hours of each day. Making it a habit that helps strengthen your life when you face adversity. It's your ascesis. This framework that you can have. And I know that some of you have already done things like this. Some of you are, are figuring out as you go along. Maybe today is a little help. And then in all of this, third, just remember that God is enough. That God's grace is enough. We don't have to look anywhere else but God for his strength and power to make it through the storms of life, to fight the fight of the faith. Several times in chapters 13 and 14, we see the word grace appearing, that they were living and ministering out of the grace of God, which was so sufficient for them. God's grace is enough. In the early service, we sang that song, your grace is enough, your grace is enough. And I believe that with all my heart and all my soul. God is enough, as our students learned in Passport Kids and Passport Choices, God is enough. He is all-sufficient to meet our needs. That you are enough. You don't need to pretend to be anybody else. You are enough. You are created in the image of a loving God. You are enough. You don't have to worry about what other people say or think about you. And there is enough of God's grace and love to go around. He supplies all of our needs. I shared earlier today with one of our members, he is the Jehovah Jireh. You read back in the story of Abraham and Isaac when God... Uh, told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then at the last moment, he stopped it and provided a ram in the thicket. And they were able to see God's provision. And the hill was called Jehovah-Jireh, the, the God who provides. God provides all our needs. There is enough for us and for us to share. And sometimes, as our students have learned, we say enough already. 
as Paul and Barnabas did as they were ministering. Enough already of injustice. Enough already of discrimination. Enough already of division. Enough already we as Christian people can unite over the, co- uh, the, the core beliefs of the Gospel message that it is for all people and that God loves every single person no matter what their walk of life or background or race or nationality or ethnicity or language, that God loves every single person just as He does us. Remember that, that His grace is enough. Paul wrote, but he said to me, Jesus did, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much that on this day, at this hour, we can draw on the ancients like Jonah and those a little bit more contemporary in the New Testament like Barnabas and Paul. And, and we can draw on the strength and encouragement from one another here and now. Help us to be reminded that you are enough for us. Your grace is all sufficient. And that we are enough. And that you love us so much that you gave us your one and only son, Jesus Christ. And that if we place our faith and trust in him, we shall not perish but have everlasting life. Simple truth, but gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.